The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So please turn or tap in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're continuing our preaching series, Follow the Son, uh, as we make our way towards the conclusion of this magnificent gospel. We have preached through, well, I think today we would have completed 14 chapters of Mark, which is quite remarkable and just has been a joy for us as we have journeyed. And we've seen Jesus in so many ways. So today we're continuing in Mark's passion narrative. That's the story of the suffering and death of Jesus. So Mark, as I was saying, has provided us with many snapshots of Jesus in many different specific moments. Here in Mark 14, 43 to 52, he captures the moment of Jesus' arrest. He's betrayed in an ambush led by one of his own. Mark wants us to see how Jesus faced this horrible moment and in this storm of hostility, recognize that he is, in as, much con- he is as much in control as when he walked on the stormy sea. We need to know that if we're going to trust him and follow him through the uncertainty of our own lives. So let's read then from Mark 14, 43 to 52. This is God's trustworthy word sent to encourage us. Yeah, we might need that pencil. That that pencil needs help. Can somebody help with the pencil? (laughs) It's fine. We have noise here when they speak and make noise in service. We're just glad to have them. So Mark 14, 43 to 52. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away on the guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. There's a spot in the Garden of Gethsemane, impossible to identify these days, and likely altered over the years by heat and rain and the shaking of the earth, where footsteps and conspiracies and prophecy converged in the middle of the night hundreds of years ago. It's amazing that the earth did not cave in under the weight of the momentous events that took place there. But almost as suddenly as they began, those events ended, and that spot in the garden was utterly deserted. As some scattered in every direction and others marched away with their quarry in custody. 
Mark's arrest report is unsurprisingly brief, yet filled with striking images. A kiss of betrayal, an armed posse, the drawing of swords, a severed ear, calm surrender, the flight of friends, a linen garment, a naked getaway. But our author gives little attention to the details in the passage that would intrigue both readers and commentators. He trains our focus first on Judas and then on Jesus. As one commentator suggests, uh, as one commentator suggests, the arrest is narrated as a fateful and final meeting between them. An unnamed yet actively involved in this account are two groups. The crowd that came to arrest Jesus and the disciples who would abandon him. Set against the treachery of Judas, the hostility of his enemies, and the unreliability of his own disciples, the faithfulness of Jesus shines brilliantly in that shameful night. In Gethsemane, Jesus gave himself up first to God's will as we saw last week, and then, as we'll see in this passage, to his captors. Here's what we see at the heart of this story. Jesus, betrayed by Judas and abandoned by all, surrendered to his enemies in submission to God's will. The wickedness and weakness of men converged in that moment, but what prevailed was the purposes of God. And Jesus wasn't taken in their dragnet or overwhelmed by their forces. He gave himself up, knowing that the scripture was being fulfilled. He embraced the moment because he had embraced his mission. Jesus, betrayed by Judas and abandoned by all, surrendered to his enemies in submission to God's will. Today, instead of tracing the storyline as we often do in narratives, uh, what I want to do is to spotlight each of the members of the cast of characters, each one in turn. Each one of them offers us a vantage point on the nature and the magnitude of Jesus' submission that night. So we'll start with the instigator, Judas, and then we'll focus on the crowd, and then on the disciples, and finally on Jesus himself. There's a movie that was released in 1995 entitled The Usual Suspects. It's memorable because it it was one of these movies with an ensemble cast, but it also won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. But I will always remember it because somebody spoiled it for me. You see, The Usual Suspects is one of those films where through most of it, you just do not know who the real villain is. So I'm talking to a friend and they're like, hey, have you seen The Usual Suspects? And I reply, no. And they're like, I can't believe it was so-and-so. Just like, are you serious? Just like, what's the point of my watching the film? No, because I'm watching it knowing the whole time who the villain is. But quite interestingly, that's how Mark has written this gospel. I guess a part of that is people knew the story of Jesus and people knew about Judas. So there's been a lot to surprise us, but he's never been attempting to create suspense around the identity of Jesus' betrayal. The very first mention of Judas, back in chapter 3, verse 19, when Mark lists the names of the 12 apostles whom Jesus handpicked, goes like this, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we've had to wait for the story to play out, but Judas' role has always been known to us. In this chapter, it's apparent that Jesus wasn't merely aware of what, Jesus would, what Judas would do. Sorry, He also knew exactly when he would do it. So in verse 41, if you look back in your Bibles, he rouses his sleeping disciples just before Judas arrives and says, The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayal is at hand. In verse 43, Judas, Judas arrives on the scene and Mark announces him as Judas, one of the twelve. So what's going on? Remember, Mark is economical with his words, so he's not wasting any words in this. We already know that Judas is one of the twelve. So why does Mark say it again? Well, he's highlighting the identity of the betrayer, and in doing so, he's illustrating the extent of the betrayal. Judas wasn't just one of many followers of Jesus. You know, if you, if you read the Gospels, you'll realize there are lots of people around Jesus. If you go into Acts 1, you'll realize that a few weeks after Jesus' ascension, there are 120 disciples gathered uh, in a room, just kind of waiting on the Holy Spirit. Judas wasn't a part of that larger group. He was a part of the twelve. He was one of those chosen to be with Jesus and to partner in his mission. Think about this. Judas carried one of those baskets uh, when they were collecting all of the leftovers from the miraculous feeding. So he's like picking up fish and bread, just his mind blown by Jesus' power and his love. He had access to Jesus to ask questions. Remember, Jesus would preach and teach in parables, and it was only the disciples who could ask him, what do you mean by that? What's that about? Judas was one of those guys. Judas knew Jesus' messianic identity when all of the disciples were sworn to secrecy still. He knew who Jesus was. He shared in the Passover meal with Jesus. And the way they did it is they'd have this sauce that I think was made from fruit. And it's in a bowl. And, you know, these guys are so close, they're like taking their bread and dipping it into the same bowl together as they were eating that meal. Yeah, double dipping was definitely going on. And in this time, it's unthinkable. But hey, you know, different cultures eat different ways, you know. But the point is, Judas was Jesus' friend. He was like family. That Judas, Mark is highlighting, betrayed Jesus. Mark, as he's telling us this story, does not point out when Judas had separated from the rest of the disciples that night. But he had already walked away from Jesus before that point. He had made up his mind to betray Jesus sometime before the Passover meal and had visited the chief priests to offer his services. And reading between the lines, he clearly knew Jesus' pattern of movement. So he was able to lead the enemies right to where he would be that night. The last word on Judas' lips in this gospel is rabbi. A term that ought to express honor. The monstrous thing uh, about his plan is that it depended on maintaining the appearance that he was still Jesus' faithful disciple. It depended on the access Jesus had granted him. The privilege to walk right up to Jesus as a brother could. And the diabolical prearranged signal was an expression of intimacy and respect, a gesture of affection. Judas was so committed, so personally invested in handing Jesus over to those who wanted to kill him that he was willing to walk into the darkness of the garden and paint the target with a kiss. Here's the thing I want you to recognize. Judas' betrayal of Jesus was personal. The songwriter Michael Card probably wouldn't be the cup of tea of most people in here, but he captures this affecting moment in a song entitled Why. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show them? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. 
A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend could come close enough to ever cause so much pain. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was personal for both men. Jesus let Judas kiss him. He watched him approach, knowing exactly what he had come to do. He stood there and he allowed it. Despite his thorough scheming, Judas was never in control of those moments. Jesus received his kiss not as a token of affection, but as a kiss of death. His pretense was as plain as day to the one who sees the hearts of men. His intimacy with Jesus hadn't granted him access. Jesus had granted him access because such was his resolute commitment to God's will and to saving God's people that he embraced being betrayed by Judas. One unique aspect of Mark's account of this event and all that led up to it is that he offers no reason for Judas' betrayal. The other gospel writers in their accounts point to greed and some of them point to satanic agency. Mark seems to want to present the betrayal as inexplicable, as entirely baffling and unexplainable. And that's a gift for his original readers and for us. If you follow Jesus, it's only a matter of time before you watch others walk away from him. It might be personal friends. It might be popular figures. I've seen several leaders that I looked up to renounce their faith and many friends who I grew up with walk away from faith in Jesus. And it's always bewilderingly painful. And I'm most definitely not saying that everyone who questions or leaves the faith is a betrayer of the ilk of Judas. Some have been wounded in church or by Christians and some have been deceived. Many need prayer and to be pursued gently and patiently. But I think Mark is helping us to have a category for incomprehensible animosity towards Jesus from people who once followed him and called others to follow him. The person who was a public witness for Jesus but now has become a public critic of the faith. Sometimes departures can leave us wondering whether something is deficient in Jesus or in the Christian faith. And of course things are broken in every local church and in the wider Christian culture. And we should therefore be open to charitable critique and willing to give a thoughtful hearing even to what comes across as hostile critique. But as we struggle to understand the defections we see, we can be tempted to elevate circumstances and personal stories to the status of compelling reasons. I think Mark wants us to know that some rejection of Jesus is utterly unexplainable, but is far from unprecedented. And it shouldn't surprise us or discourage us from following Jesus. Mark's gospel will never mention Judas again. He maliciously and sinfully betrayed Jesus, yet unwittingly played his part in God's plan. But Judas wasn't the only actor that night with malicious intent. He brought a crowd with him. And now we turn our attention to them. Our text in verse 43 tells us that Judas had brought with him a crowd with swords and clubs. It's easy to imagine that this was some sort of armed mob made up of some worthless man, uh, as if they had gathered some small-time criminals to do a job, you know? But these weren't thugs. They were sent from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They were temple security, temple, temple police, and the private security of the Jewish elders. The swords and clubs were the equivalent of guns and riot gear, batons used for crowd control. 
This was an official government-sanctioned operation. The scholar James Edwards helps us to understand, Mark, to understand Mark's characterization of this crowd. Jesus is shadowed and apprehended by a relentless bureaucracy in which, then as now, persons and processes are set in motion for which no one seems responsible and which no one is able to stop. The crowd and henchmen are faceless and remain anonymous. In Jerusalem, Jesus demonstrated his authority in word and deed. He showed his superior wisdom by shutting up the leaders, these same leaders, in debate and spoke parables and pronounced woes against the Jewish establishment. The conspirators against Jesus were rivals among themselves and had deep theological and political differences. Yet together they sought to orchestrate Jesus' arrest and death. Based on the other gospel accounts, that crowd, the crowd that night probably included some Roman soldiers, the muscle of the regime that ruled over the Jewish people. Apparently, Jesus brings people together. The crowd that night was probably not that large. Just enough manpower to be inconspicuous as they moved through Jerusalem, but to be sure they could overwhelm any attempts at resistance by Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Mark's portrayal of Jesus' arrest is stark. Once they received the signal, the mob converged on Jesus' position, grabbed him, and restrained him. There's a brief incident of violence, but it didn't persist once Jesus spoke up and communicated his surrender. But when Jesus spoke, he pointed out the hypocrisy of the bureaucracy. In verses 48 and 49, he said, Have you come out against As against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. That word translated robber didn't necessarily mean a common thief. When the Romans used it, they they often would use it to refer to an insurrectionist or outlaws who are trying to lead a a revolution. But Jesus wasn't agitating in secret. He was teaching in public. In broad daylight, he spoke to the armed crowd and pointed out, I was with you. It's possible that he recognized some of their faces. It's certain that he knew who they were and that they knew who he was. And they had heard him teaching. If he was guilty of a crime, why didn't they arrest him right then and there when he was in the temple in the midst of them saying what he was saying? Why is this taking place in the dead of night? If he was a violent threat, I mean, think about it. You know, we have Akeem here, we have Nicholas with us a lot of the time. You know, these guys are trained in such a way that when you see somebody who's behaving in a threatening way, they recognize it. You know, you kind of train to say, wait, what's going on there? I need to watch that guy carefully. So wouldn't it have been obvious to them as, as security personnel if he were a threat? Why have they come after him like they're raiding an Al Qaeda stronghold? You see, Jesus' arrest was not illegal. But clearly it was corrupt. Jesus surrendered to the crowd, uh, but he didn't treat them like they're the mindless arm of the law. The crowd was made up of individuals who were making decisions that night. They may have been under orders, but they were accountable to God for their actions. And they knew that what they were doing was wrong. This week I received a monthly newsletter from Sovereign Grace Emerging Nations. As many of, you, many of you would know, we are part of a, a denomination called Sovereign Grace Churches. And Emerging Nations is a team 
that's uh, responsible for leading and coordinating our church planting and partnership efforts in most places outside of the U.S. One of the stories in that newsletter was an update from Sergei, I'm going to try to get this last name, Lukianov, Sergei Lukianov, and he's our main partner and contact in Belarus. You know, so I opened the newsletter, and all the newsletters have images. They're laid out nicely, and the image just struck me immediately. It was a picture taken from behind of a young woman in a white dress, uh, and she's standing in front of a line of riot police. Uh, So she's standing like in a plaza somewhere. You can see the detailing on the stones in, in that plaza. And it's this line more than a man deep that stretches across the whole photo of these riot police with their shields at the ready. And this is some of what Sergei shared. The situation in Belarus continues to remain unstable. The Protestant evangelical church has again fallen out of favor in the eyes of the current regime. Thousands of people continue to go to jail, including many Christians, just because they once took to the streets or wrote a comment on social media against the brutal actions of our police. Our church members constantly write letters to them in which they try to comfort and encourage them with, with, with hope in Christ. In addition, church members regularly collect financial aid to support the relatives and friends of those who are in prison. There seems to be no possibility of getting our church registration approved by the government. Therefore, we have little idea of how we can can continue our ministry legally. However, God gives mercy and we meet every Sunday. We praise God that new people are regularly coming to us. Dear brothers and sisters, please continue to pray for us as pastors, Sergei, Philip, Valerie, and Vitaly. We are especially glad that you regularly pray for us. Especially in the last two years, it has been very important to realize that we are not alone. God is with us and our brothers and sisters are with us. Jesus appeared to be caught in the power of a relentless and corrupt bureaucracy. So do our brothers and sisters in Belarus. But Jesus knew that the bureaucracy was not in control of him or his destiny. That's why he surrendered that night. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus suffered according to God's plan in order to redeem us. Christians since then, including Mark's original readers, suffer according to God's plan as his redeemed people. This is Romans 8, 36-39. As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Belarus. If you want to sign up for the Emerging Nations newsletter, send us a message via WhatsApp or via social media and we'll give you the link so you can be praying for our family around the world. And let's pray also for the faceless, anonymous crowds of enforcers in Belarus too. Jesus loves to redeem those who once persecuted him and his people. Such is his love for his enemies. While Jesus was prepared for the arrival of Judas and the crowd, his disciples most certainly were not. Now we focus the spotlight on them. They are our third 
The third in our cast of characters, the disciples. There are a number of intriguing elements in Mark's account that he does not illuminate. There's the brief scuffle in which the high priest's servant is injured. Mark doesn't reveal the identity of the attacker. Luke's gospel, which includes a lot more detail about Jesus' arrest, says it was Peter. Mark simply says it was one of those who stood by, not even revealing whether or not it was one of the disciples or somebody else. But since Mark has chosen to omit the identity of the ear-slashing swordsman, we can safely conclude that it's not substantive for the sermon that he is preaching. The only thing he wants us to see about that incident is that the violence was very quickly cut short when Jesus intervened. Where Mark trains his camera on the disciples is unquestionably at the end of the account. The brevity of verse 50, both in English and the original Greek, amplifies its effect. And they all left him and fled. In the Greek text, the word all is highlighted by its position at the end of the sentence. To a man, they all gripped their robes so that they wouldn't trip and run away from Jesus as he was taken into custody by the crowd. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The scriptures were being fulfilled in several ways that night. Mark highlights the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that Jesus quoted to the disciples a few hours before this, back in verse 27 of this chapter, when he warned them that all of them would fall away. The striking of the shepherd had begun and the sheep were scattering. I wonder if as they ran, they remembered their insistent protests and, and their brave boasts that they would never abandon Jesus. I wonder if James and John remembered their claim that they were ready to drink the cup that Jesus had to drink. I wonder if they remembered how they all drank of the communion cup that Jesus shared with them as an act of familial fellowship. No, terrified and ashamed, they abandoned him, running off into the night. And you need to remember, it wasn't easy to run into the night, you know. There There are no street lights. Yeah, they probably weren't carrying torches, and if they were, they probably would have dropped them. So the man them running headlong into pitch blackness to get away. They didn't listen. They didn't prepare. Jesus had prayed, had wrestled in prayer, and they had slept. He faced the hostile crowd with clear-eyed clarity, and they were probably still rubbing sleep from their eyes, confused as this ambush played out. Mark adds another peculiar detail that he does not shed light on, graciously preserving what dignity remained for a young man who became a streaker that night. That young man, whoever he was, sought to follow the crowd as they took Jesus away. So he at least was trying to see what was going to happen. But when the man them turned and tried to grab him, no. He wriggled out of his clothes, out of the linen shirt, which was the only thing he was wearing, and beat a retreat as naked as the day he was born. Now, there's been seemingly endless speculation about the identity of that young man and attempts to interpret the clues. So linen would have been worn by the wealthy, and it could have been bedclothes. So was he at the house that they had uh, shared the Passover at? Did he just kind of jump out of bed when he realized everybody was leaving and follow behind Jesus and the disciples? Once again, Mark is not interested in identifying the young man. His point is clear. Save your own skin. It's every man for himself right now. This was a desperate, hasty, at-all-cost retreat. He would rather lose his clothes than lose his life with Jesus. And he represented all of the disciples. 
with the exception of Peter, who would follow the crowd to the courtyard of the high priest for his own personalized shameful failing, this is the last appearance of the disciples in Mark's story. Now, Mark's original recipients knew that all those disciples were restored by Jesus after his resurrection. They had fallen away as the scriptures had prophesied. They had failed, but they were forgiven and restored and followed Jesus again. And they were leaders in the early church. You see, a big part of our interpretive task as we work, work our way through this gospel of Mark is to figure out what we should be doing with failing disciples. And this was their greatest point of failure. The scholar David Garland helpfully instructs us as readers. Mark does not present the disciples as models for readers to imitate, but as mirrors in which the audience can view their own foibles and failures as followers of Jesus. This naked streaker shows us a lot. Uh, figuratively, I'm speaking. You see, in the mirror of this text, we are naked. One commentator points out that the naked runaway represents every disciple, shamefully feeble and fallible. And based on what we saw last week from Peter, all of our bravado, all of our self-confidence, uh, that we would never do something like that, is as much protection as a linen shirt from a lynch mob. And on the trajectory we are on in Jamaica, in the West in general, we will face serious examinations. Increasingly in our part of the world, identifying with Jesus is shameful, intellectually and even morally these days. You can feel scorned and exposed. But it's leaving Jesus that leaves us entirely unclothed. Francis Maloney argues that followers who separate themselves from Jesus are left naked in their nothingness. The disciples thought that their, their greatest danger, that the greatest source of vulnerability that night was the hostile crowd. But it was leaving Jesus that truly made them vulnerable. This ordained moment is illustrative. Away from him, we are exposed. We are sheep without a shepherd. One of the ways that we can connect the vast truths in the Bible is thematically. The theme of nakedness, quite interestingly, appears in Revelation in two fascinating ways. In Revelation 3, 14 to 22, Jesus addresses a letter to the church in Laodicea who thought that they were thriving spiritually. He says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You see, we are naked when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're doing really well when we've forgotten our desperate need for the grace of Jesus every single day. And this is Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's a call, as one commentator explains, to stay morally alert and live righteously, one that echoes and amplifies the vigilance that Jesus called for in the Olivet Discourse that we went through in Mark chapter 13. You see, our naked friend helps us to see ourselves. He also helps us to see what Jesus has done for us. The disciples ran away that night, but Jesus was led away in custody. There, he would be stripped of his clothes and they would dress him in a, a, a purple robe, you know, kind of mocking royalty, just, just to insult him. 
He'd be stripped again of his clothes and he would hang naked on a cross as soldiers rolled dice to divide up his clothing among them. He was exposed to take our nakedness and give us his righteousness so that we would not have to run from God or to stand naked before him. It's appropriate then that we focus our attention on him, the central character in this story and in the whole Gospel of Mark. What does Mark want us to see about Jesus in the story of his arrest? So let's focus our attention on Jesus then. In the Palace of Versailles in France, there's a famous room called the Hall of Mirrors. The entire length of the hall, and it's 73 meters long, so think of a 100-meter race, and it's most of that distance was intricately designed to pay tribute to the political, economic, and artistic success of France. This is how the official website for what is now, of course, a tourist attraction describes the design of the Hall of Mirrors. Political successes are illustrated through the 30 painted compositions on the vaulted ceiling by Lebrun, which depict the glorious history of Louis XIV during the first 18 years of his reign. Military and diplomatic victories and reforms are illustrated through the allegories from antiquity. Economic prosperity is revealed through the number and size of the 357 mirrors bedecking the 17 arches opposite the windows, demonstrating that the new French manufacturer could rival the Venetian monopoly on mirror manufacturing. Artistic success is shown in the Rouge de Rang. Pilasters topped with capitals of gilded bronze based on a new design which was referred to as the French style. I mean, it sounds magnificent, doesn't it? Just kind of opulent. Yet without the intention behind the intricate design being pointed out to us, we might miss much of its meaning. Now, return your gaze to the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark has painted this scene for us with similar intentionality. I want to help you to see, what I want to help you to see is how, even in this fast-moving scene, every detail is designed to highlight the glories of Jesus, the Messiah. We've already been seeing his glories uh, as they have been re reflected in the venom and the vulnerability of the other characters. This dark scene is like a hall of mirrors reflecting his magnificence. When we looked at Judas, what was reflected is how personal and deeply painful the betrayal was for Jesus. But he allowed it. He knew what, Jesus, what Judas had come to do, yet he embraced it. When we look at the crowd, it, it appeared that Jesus had been swept away uh, by the unseen hand of political power behind these nameless and faceless men. But what we saw was his unusual composure. His act of surrender showed his control of the circumstances and quelled the brief outbreak of violence. He was calm because he knew that these evil events were the fulfillment of God's word. When we looked at the failing disciples, what's reflected in contrast is Jesus' faithfulness. He surrendered to his enemies in submission to God's will, while they surrendered to their fears in contradiction of their boasts. Observing their flight helps us to see our own desperate need for Jesus, how much we need to heed his word, which always proves true, and his warnings, which are for our good. We've already seen much of him, but for the next few minutes, we want to walk to where he stands in this hall of mirrors and fix our eyes on him, the focal point that we've been drawn to. One of the fascinating things about this passage is that Jesus seems to be passive for most of it. 
Things are happening to him. Scan the text again in your Bibles. Tracking with me starting at verse 45. In this text, Jesus is the object of many actions. Judas went up to him and kissed him. The crowd laid hands on him and seized him. The disciples all left him and fled. Jesus doesn't appear to be doing much at all. It appears that he is completely at the mercy of others. His destiny determined by them, betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, arrested by the authorities. But we ought not to be fooled by such appearances. So what does Jesus do in this text? He stands and he speaks. And both his standing and speaking reveal his confidence that God was in control, that God's will was being done in the moment of betrayal. Jesus stands. In the first place, uh, in preparation for this moment, he took his stand on his knees in prayer, wrestling with his own desires, surrendering to the Father's will. But then he stood up, literally. And in verse 42, he got his disciples out of sleep and on their feet as he stood ready to meet Judas. Jesus stands He stood there while Judas approached, stood there while he kissed him, stood there while the crowd that had been hanging back in the shadows, waiting on the signal, now swooped down to grab him. He stood while the violence broke out and while the disciples fled in terror. He stood there in all of that because he knew that he was right where he was supposed to be. He stood there for us because we were the ones who needed saving, not him. He stood there because he knew that he was not being controlled by evil men, but that God's word was being fulfilled and that he was in control of that moment. He wasn't taken in arrest. He was giving his life as a ransom for many. Throughout our journey, we've taken great pains to focus on Mark's text and uh, resisted the tendency to try to preach all the gospels at once. And I think we've been greatly served by that. But I think that these words in John's gospel function well as a commentary on this moment, exceeding the insights that any of the capable scholars we've regularly leaned on have given us. This is John 10, 15, and 18. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus stands and Jesus speaks. We already saw how he highlighted the the unwarranted force and the lack of justification in the actions of the crowd. But his concluding sentence is what really resonates. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. That's faith speaking. He knows God is in control despite the appearances. He knows God's word. He knows that it it revealed a plan of salvation from before the dawn of time. And he's submitting to it instead of resisting it at great personal cost. Here in the garden, in the midst of his betrayal, we see Jesus, the faithful disciple, shaped by God's word and submitted to God's will. We see him stand instead of fleeing and speak in faith. And he's the one we're called to imitate in this text. Here, we see Jesus, the sovereign king, calm, clear-headed, and in control, even while his enemies restrained him. He 
is our king. The one who was held by that crowd that night is the one who holds us tightly, who holds us securely. Here we see Jesus, the kind Savior, laying his life down for many, including those disciples who turned tail and ran that night. They had abandoned him, but he was committed to saving them. He was committed to saving us. The vivid Yet understated way Mark narrates the arrest account camouflages the staggering significance of this moment for every member of the cast of characters involved. Actions that are described simply reveal the heart of Judas, the crowd, the disciples, and Jesus as we accelerate towards Calvary. As if in slow motion, through the midst of the melee, into the hands of sinners, he walks steady, stable, secured by the word of God. Submitted to the will of God. Jesus, betrayed by Judas and abandoned by all, surrendered to his enemies in submission to God's will. Now, Mark has given us this story not for posterity, not for intrigue, but for us to see Jesus and to see ourselves and to be encouraged, to be better equipped by grace to follow him despite our own fallibility. We are called to walk the way of the cross in the footsteps of Jesus. And even though we walk into the unknown of each coming day, growing confidence in God's control in every circumstance can help us to be more faithful disciples. This saying is trustworthy. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And when we falter, when we flee, Jesus wants us to know that he is committed to failing disciples. He continued on the way to the cross even when all abandoned him. He rescues the runners and positions us secure in him, secure in Christ. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The words of the hymn writer are most appropriate. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Let's continually give thanks to him and cry out to him for more grace. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.